So this morning, I want to continue with the exploration that we've been uh, conducting uh, the last two times I've been here, which is on the theme of practicing with conflict and making the connections between our inner practices, our mindfulness, our loving kindness, and some of our heart practices that we, where we try to bring the, the good heart out into the world. How do we bring our sense of practice, our sense of the workability of experience and the way that we can bring our core principles and practices increasingly into any experience, even quite difficult ones. How do we make that connection when there are conflicts? And by conflicts, it's good to start right away just by saying that by conflicts, I'm probably not talking about conflicts in the usual way. Uh, Probably in two aspects. One is that I'm talking about the range of conflicts that go from inner conflicts to interpersonal conflicts to social conflicts. And secondly, and I think very significantly, I'm not assuming that conflicts are necessarily negative and problematic and necessarily connected with hostility, aggression, anger, fighting, and general unpleasantness, right? And rather, I want to look at conflict as the um, existence of a difference or sometimes uh, even uh, contradiction, but especially a difference between two values, two needs, two positions, in the simplest, simplest kind of conflicts. So it could be a conflict between should I come to Spirit Rock on Wednesday morning and go to what surely will be an amazing Dharma talk? <laughs> or should I sleep in? Right? And there might be genuine needs connected with each of those choices, right? And that can be, that's a difference. And I'm calling that a conflict just as much as something which is unpleasant. Should I, if I have a chance to go out to supper, my partner wants to go to this restaurant and I want to go to that restaurant. Which one do I go to? How do we resolve that difference, right? Should I stay in this job or not? And there can be values and needs on either side. So I want to try to approach conflicts, even difficult ones, where we increasingly can look at them and see differences of values, needs, sometimes positions. You know, should I paint the house white, example I gave last time, or purple? And uh, that may be an actual conflict of positions between myself, my partner, whatever, my kids or whatever. So I want to approach conflict in that way, recognizing, as we did last time, that for most of us, the word conflict carries primarily negative connotations. 
And that's certainly the way it's used in the uh, society, right? And I think last time when we uh, looked at connotations, we had connotations of anger, violence. Uh, let me see, I actually wrote down some of them. Uh, anger, violence, war, fighting, win-lose, dominance, stubbornness, parenting, marriage. Most of those were negative connotations, not all of them. Okay, So that's what people came up with last time. So in that approach, I'm giving an approach that's, I think, different from the habitual way, more stereotypical way that we look at conflict. That, and what I'm going to suggest is that the principles and practices that we can develop are useful for any level of conflict, whether it's uh, an inner conflict, what should I do, should I stay in this job, stay in this relationship, uh, whatever, to an interpersonal conflict, to a larger social conflict, that the principles and practices are essentially the same that we need to handle conflicts well and skillfully. And I would suggest that in our world right now, being more skillful with conflict is one of the great needs of our time. You know, we have a very polarized society. Part of the impetus for my working with these themes, as, as those of you know who came to the first talk, was that I recently came back from the Middle East, where I was for nearly a month in Israel and, and also a trip to the West Bank, where it was my third time to the West Bank, and you know, I'm I'm very interested in how can a pretty stuck conflict, uh, how can that get resolved? So that's what that's what I'll offer today. And uh, what I want to do is partly review what we've explored so far, and then bring in one major new resource. And generally, uh, what I've presented so far is naming three resources of which we've explored two of them in some depth. The first set of resources, uh, I'll just name them now and then I'll come back and describe them briefly. The first set of resources are those connected with our practice. Uh, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll go through each of them and then, uh, and then go on to the new one. But I also wanted to bring in some reference to 9-11, which is today. And aside from naming people's birthdays, and we had the remembrance of people who were uh, killed on that day, right? And I, I was inspired partly uh, by the theme to bring in a poster which hangs in my home from the uh, Bread and Puppet Theater of Vermont. And it's, you know, it's a wonderful image, I think, of two beings with, you know, I mean, you've heard of deadheads. Now we have breadheads, <laughs> and so and the uh, the theme of the poster is that shows two beings with breadheads uh, by the moon, and the slogan says that simple light may rise out of complicated darkness. That simple light might rise out of complicated darkness. That could be a theme for the exploration of conflict, that 
simple, wise resolutions may come out of complicated difficulties. And that's really, that, that'll, I'll keep this here and we can, we can remember that. So the first two themes that we've looked at were first the theme of our own individual practice helping us to work with conflict. And partly that was to look into our conditioning. What's our conditioning around conflict? And we, you know, with show of hands, we we saw that most of us, the conditioning is to be avoidant of conflict, right? And what's the show of hands now? How many of you were conditioned to be generally avoidant of conflict? And and the the other main alternative is just to sort of jump into conflict and, you know, kind of act out, basically. How many of you had that as your conditioning? And a lot of this is cultural, as I mentioned. You know, some cultures are more avoidant. I think in the U.S., uh, avoidance is is the dominant theme, but not universally. And I mentioned last time that some people prefer a hybrid approach to conflict, called being passive-aggressive, which has the benefits of both avoiding conflict but also acting out. <laughs> okay. We may go more into that if we wish. So partly it's, to, partly it's to look at the conditioning around conflict, and we can do that by looking more deeply, seeing the social conditioning. I mentioned last time that there are very strong uh, tendencies not just to avoid conflict, but that when conflict surfaces, to approach it in a dualistic way, typically uh, right and wrong, most commonly I'm right, you're wrong, and have something like a win-lose model, you know, where we have a winner and a loser. I mentioned the importance of sports, organized professional sports for this. I think I mentioned last time how in professional sports, ties are seen as wretched, you know, and that in professional football, which I think has started, you know, if, you, if, if there's a tie, the, the solution to the tie is to go to what's called a sudden death. <laughs> and, and so we have very commonly, common dualistic models that are there from sports, that's the structure of the legal profession in our society. There are people who are trying to remedy that by developing approaches like restorative justice, but we have a very, what we would call adversarial legal system, right? And so you can see this tendency to a dualistic approach to conflict in many of cultural manifestations. I think sports, the law, what else, anyone, anything else occur to you? Even something like the uh, the way we elect presidents, right? It's different, you know, it's different than other cults. Some other societies, there's a more pluralistic approach to elections. We, we tend to have a, uh, prefer a dualistic approach. In some societies, there might be proportional representation related to the vote. Here, it's winners and losers. So there are a lot of things in the culture which contribute to that win-lose model. So partly we look at our conditioning, partly we also can start to bring some of the resources from our practice to deal with conflicts. And that could be uh, many 
capacities. Uh, mindfulness can we can help us to look at our conditioning, to look at the mind when there's a conflict. Look at the mind and emotions. One of the great resources that our practice brings is the capacity is the capacity or ability to be skillful when there are difficult emotions. I mentioned last time that what I'm mentioning today could be a six-month or 12-month curriculum. I'm just glossing over, okay, how do we work with difficult emotions? That could be something we focus on for eight sessions, right? And we've done that in the past sometimes, but I just want to name that, that this each of what I'm sort of mentioning quickly could be fo- the focus for if we were doing a year-long curriculum on how to be skillful with conflict, which would be a great program. That's what we would do. We would spend a month on or more on being with difficult emotions that might come up in conflicts. You know, uh, how to work with anger, how to work with fear or anxiety, how to work with sadness, how to work with uh, um, despair, and so forth, how to work with these, this variety of difficult emotions, how to work with the difficult mind states, being judgmental of someone with whom one's in conflict. Very, you know, extremely common because we, you know, the dualistic model tends to mean I'm right, you're wrong. Sometimes, some of, for some of us, it's I'm wrong, you're right. But for most of us, most of the time, it's I'm right, you're wrong. That often goes together with the judgmental mind reactivity towards the other, negativity and so forth. And when we bring our mindfulness practice to this, um, it's very, very helpful, right? So, and we can also look to the quality of equanimity, which develops as we have more and more uh, skill with all the challenging mind states, mind states, emotional states, body states, there are whole sets of body practices which help with the conflict. Because in conflict, we get rattled, we get activated on a physiological level. So very important to be skillful with the body. We looked at some of those uh, in the first session. And by the way, uh, all of those recordings are on Dharma Seed. And I put on uh, Dharma Seed the photographs that I showed from uh, being in Israel in the West Bank I have those photos are on Dharma Seed now, most of them. And you, so they're there. And I also put the handout from last time is on Dharma Seed as well. So if you want to go back and hear those talks, the handout is there as well. And that handout was on uh, what we could call the win-win or both-and model of working with conflicts. And there's, there's a longer discussion of that from uh, last time. But a very brief version of that is that the typical way that we work with conflicts is symbolized by this uh, diagram here. And feel free to move if uh, you can't see it so well. A very simple diagram. This comes from uh, a person I've studied with named Johann Galtung, who's one of the great writers and teachers on peacemaking in the last 50 years, was, I think, single-handedly the founder of peace studies at universities. And quite a, I think quite an impressive person. He's written a lot of books. And this model is found in many locations, this kind of win-win model or both-end model to resolving conflicts. The basic idea is in a conflict, one tries to see if one can resolve the needs 
or the values of both sides rather than staying with what is often the initial formulation of a conflict, which is either this value wins or that value wins. So let's say, again, we can apply this to very simple uh, situations. Okay, let's suppose that uh, I ha- ha- we can go out to eat tonight. I want to go, you know, I've uh, worked really hard today. I've just come home from work. You know, I, I don't want to go too far away. I want to do something simple, right? And I say, well, let's go to local Thai restaurant. And my partner says, we go there so many times. I want to go to something new, right? And that can appear as a conflict. What we do with the both-end situation is we try to see the underlying needs or values connected with each of the positions, right? The initial positions are Thai restaurant versus something interesting or whatever, creative. And when we get a sense of the underlying values, we might be able to find a solution which, as it were, meets both of the needs. Initially, we get locked into positions very commonly. And you can see this with most conflicts. Most conflicts don't go to trying to find some resolution that meets the needs of both sides, right? And so here's an example um, and you'll be the uh, peacemakers here. Or maybe, or maybe I should say, um, one of the things which is helpful about this model, it also identifies, uh, it identifies A versus B as the dualistic conflict. Either one side wins or the other side wins. But there are actually three alternative positions, each of which can have value in certain conflicts. In some conflicts, what I've labeled here as D, it's called avoidance, can be a very skillful response. If there, you know, this in the world, if there's a violent conflict, ceasefire is major movement. If two people have been arguing together, taking a time out can be really, really helpful. That is a skillful response sometimes. Sometimes it's, you can't go too quickly to the uh, both-and solution. You have to, sometimes you need time for that to emerge. Similarly, at times, compromise can be really, really skillful and the best possible solution at a given moment. But as uh, if you're working, though, with conflict or mediation, one has one's eyes ultimately on the win-win or the both-end. And so it can be really helpful to get to know this model better by looking at any difference of values that appears in your life and using this model and getting skillful. So we'll do one exercise, okay? Um, Okay, first one. I am a parent. I have two children. They're in the kitchen. There is one orange on the kitchen table. Both of the kids want the orange. Okay? What's the dualistic conflict? Either one kid gets it or the other, right? So what, I, what I'm suggesting is valuable to, is to use this model with particular conflicts, okay? And so uh, what, would, uh, what would avoidance be as a solution? Huh? Parent says you're fighting, no one gets the orange. Or, or it could be time out, right? It could be time out, 
we'll come back to the and and look at the orange in ten minutes. That would be avoidance. What would the compromise be? One form of compromise. And what you'll see is that one of the great values for being a mediator or someone who works skillfully with conflict is creativity. Using your imagination. So we, we typically go to, okay, we can cut the orange in half, right? That's a compromise. What's another compromise? Yeah, it could be, see, we want the creativity. One, okay, now we, again, we'd want to know really what the needs are to know whether that was a good compromise, but it might be, you can have the orange and you can have an apple, right? And that might be a good compromise if it doesn't matter. If it matters, it might not be a good compromise, right? Then you want to, so you, you need a little more information. What's another possible uh, compromise? <coughs> Yeah. Yeah, one person gets an orange today, one kid gets an orange today, another one gets it tomorrow. See, I like the creativity, right? And uh, we don't know whether that'd be a good solution or not. It depends on more information. Maybe last one. (laughs) It could be... You know, so we want to know what do they really want? Do they just do they really want the orange, or do they really want something else? They both get a cookie. Um, is that a compromise? It doesn't sound like a compromise. <laughs> okay, so okay, so but we get the idea. And what would the both end? Uh, what would be an example of a both end solution to this? Find another orange. It might be, yeah. Um, it might be getting a sense of both kids really want an orange and I happen to know there's an orange in the refrigerator. Right? Okay. And, and so, the, but they're squabbling because they're not going to the refrigerator and say, okay, I have another orange. You'll both get an orange. Okay. That could be a both end. What's another both end? Yeah, it could be, um, possibly could lead to a both end, but it might, might be, <laughs> so what was suggested was to let the kids work it out themselves, which would certainly be, yeah, yeah. Now here, here what's important is we want to get a sense, that might be a really skillful approach. I'm not sure it, it would fit the both end model, because here we want to meet the needs of both kids. And having them have an educational process might not do it. Right? But it's, it actually might be even more skillful than going for a both-end solution. Because you might, you might be saying, okay, I'm not going to go quickly to the both-end. I'm going to do something educational, which actually aren't going to meet their needs in the present, but they might meet their needs for the long term. Right? And so that's, so I like the creativity. Right? Maybe I'll take one more. If you can, if you can speak really loudly so I can hear. Or you, we can use a mic, yeah. Okay. What I was going to say is that when I first started writing books in 2000, as a doctor, what I noticed is that when negotiations like this happen, people act like they're going for both in, 
but they're still trying to get their way. They're still suggesting a way, not even really including the other person. Yeah. Just coming up with other ideas to walk right back to so I get what I want. Yeah. And that's not what both ended is. That's it's right. Literally fixing it for the other person. So instead, you could have each of them fix it for the other person and most humans don't get that level of consciousness. Like I've had what, 20 years of being a doctor and written 18 books. And what I've seen is most humans motivation is to stay stuck where they are because they're not willing to give up what they want for the other person. Yeah. And that's what both ends mean. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, what we're really seeing and really the reason for this series of explorations is that the conditioning to go for just my own uh, choice or my own what I want is very, very strong. And so here we were trying to see if we could actually be in a mediating role as the parent and try to try out the, the both end, right? Both end solution. Let me, let me move on now in, in terms of time. And so... This is, this is what we explored some last time. And I was thinking in terms of, you know, the anniversary of 9-11, I had some, just some reflections that I'm afraid that, you know, it was uh, such an intense wound, we might say. So many 3,000 people killed that there was, it was very, uh, very, very hard to do other than go into a stereotypical response to it, which we can see what happened, right? That there, there wasn't so much capacity to do other than go into a both-end way to dealing with a conflict, right? And that uh, it wasn't even possible to do inner work with it, right? Some people did, and I was told that in New York City, New York was the best that people experienced in the days after 9-11 because of the level of warmth, empathy, and compassion, right? That that was very, very strong. Uh, but at the level of the government, it was different, right? And, you know, I remember George Bush being asked, and I'm going I'm to be giving a perspective here, George Bush being asked a month after 9-11, how, how have your feelings been in the last few weeks? And he said, I don't do feelings. That's Laura's business. So, and then it's no coincidence that it went very quickly to we're right, they're wrong. You're either with us or with the terrorists. A both and approach. What happened has nothing to do with anything we've done. Even though obviously the targets were U.S. economic power and U.S. military power, right? So, but there was not an ability to go there. It was just, and, you know, there was also, uh, you know, and then of course there was the invasion of Iraq. And I would say this was an unskillful approach to conflict, to say the least. You know, the estimates of those who were killed is, ranges, you know, ranges widely from, you know, typically from several hundred thousand to over a million Iraqis to uh, I think 4,400 uh, U.S. service people and so forth. And 
just to me the epitome of a very difficult situation, difficult conflict that was handled unskillfully and the repercussions are still there, right? Repercussions are still there and the presence of ISIS goes directly from that. So it's, it's, just, it's um, again, I wasn't meaning to go too directly into some of the you know, political dimensions of it, but that's certainly the way I see it. Unskillful conflict, both end kind of approach and so forth. Um, and, uh, yeah, okay. So, on the other hand, the level of pain and wound was very severe, and so it's understandable. How many of us, when we've had something really difficult happen to us, go into a both-and approach to conflict? We've had some kind of difficult situation with another person. How many of us have had that experience where we become self-righteous, we blame the other, we have no empathy for the other person? Anyone relate to that? I think it's very, very common. And um, and so the third capability that I wanted to bring up, and I think we'll do more with this next time, is the capacity for empathy and for um, uh, really tuning in to the experience of another. And this is, you could see this is a very crucial capacity for the approach of developing a both-end approach to, to conflict. That one can actually have the capacity to tune in to another person's experience. And empathy, as it's been researched, is, is a uh, innate capacity that humans have to tune in to others' experience. And when they've done research on empathy, they uh, have found that there are three kinds of empathy. One is tuning into people's emotions. Another is tuning into the um, cognitive dimension, what's meaningful for someone. And third is tuning into people's almost at the bodily level. So we can... When, when someone is experiencing something, we have the capacity to tune in to what that person is experiencing, what's meaningful for that person, what matters for the person. And, uh, and we have also the capacity when we see someone walking, we have our mirror neurons functioning in a way that we actually uh, mimic in our minds what's happening with the other person. And so we, uh, we can tune in empathically to people. I want to present empathy, though, as a deliberate practice because although we have an innate capacity for empathy, empathy can be blocked. What blocks empathy? Yeah. Anger can block empathy. Hmm? Fear. Greed. Do you say... Grief? Greed. Delusion. Delusion. Self-righteousness. A lot of your examples that you gave. All sorts of things can block empathy. And so, um, I find, and another point about empathy is that even though it's innate, it can be misused. Politicians typically misuse empathy they know what other people think, but they can, one can use empathy for manipulative purposes. 
you know what someone else feels through empathy, but you, you're not necessarily interested in what's important for them or empathic in the sense of being interested in really understanding them and connecting with them. And so empathy is an interesting practice and it can be a deliberate practice. And what I want to offer is a way of practicing, which we'll, which we'll work with now. So if you can take the sheet that has emotions and needs This was developed from the discipline of nonviolent communication. And on one side, there are feelings. On the other side, there are needs. And feelings are the same thing as emotions. So there's a a nice list of emotions here. There's a very full list of emotions. Uh, And one of the benefits of developing empathy is we get more sophisticated in distinguishing what the emotions are. But, and so this is a list of emotions and on the other side is a list of needs. And what uh, needs are in nonviolent communication, they're really similar to values. And the idea is that at any given moment, we're always acting according to basic needs. And the needs here are understood as universal. The need to be safe, the need to have nutrition, the need for meaning the need for freedom, and so forth. And these were understood as universal, and they're distinguished from strategies. In other words, security is a need, but strategy, there could be many strategies that we use to be secure. We could get a a warning system at the house. We could learn karate or whatever. And, um, uh, And so we can have all sorts of strategies to meet very valid needs. We can also have very valid needs and try to meet those needs in unskillful ways. One common example would be an alcoholic has a need for peace. The peace is very genuine. The route to get the peace is not very skillful. And And this is one of the things which opens up empathy, that we can see that there can be a very beautiful, important need that goes hand in hand with unskillful strategies. Can anyone think of another uh, valid need and unskillful strategy? Well, yeah, why don't we use, we can use the mic. You could have a need for some physical object and solve it by theft. Yeah, yeah. Or I have a need for, uh, I, I have a need for that pretty uh, uh, ring, and I steal it. Or I, have, I, I feel a need for that uh, that book, and I steal it. Right. So theft would generally be seen as an unskillful strategy, but it can meet a genuine need. Or even in extreme circumstances, people steal when they're hungry. Right. Another example of a, a genuine need and unskillful strategy. The, um, do you have one? Oh, okay. Okay. No, I don't think. Do you have one? No. Okay. Anyone have an example? Yeah. 
um, needing uh, validation or love and doing some bad behavior to get it. Looking for love in the wrong places. <laughs> right, but wanting love and engaging in behavior that may not be so skillful. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really crucial distinction. And so one form of empathy practice, which I think was developed by my colleague Oren Sofer when we were teaching together on wise speech, where empathy is right at the center, involves listening to someone and tuning in to what the emotions are and what matters for the person, what the values are that's underlying, okay? And so, uh, and you, you can do this initially as a practice by looking at the sheet. So I'm going to say something that's meaningful to me and I want to receive empathy from you, okay? Ready? So you can look at your sheets as you're doing this. And I want you to be able to say what, what are a few emotions that you hear and what are some underlying needs, okay? Ready? So, okay. So I thought I left a lot of time this morning because I, I really wanted to be here early and do, actually I had plans for doing some things before I came. And, and then uh, traffic didn't seem so bad at first coming from the East Bay. And then it got, it was bad. And I thought, okay, we're fine. And then it was really, really bad coming into San Rafael. And it was like way worse than almost I've ever seen it ever. And at a certain point I was saying, uh-oh, doesn't look so good. And then it got really stuck, you know, going further, trying to come in through San Rafael. And then, then it kind of flowed well. And then Fairfax well, and, but mostly, so there was a little bit of frustration, but then was, at a certain point, it was just, this is what it is. Uh, okay. okay, cut. Okay, so what, what emotions did you hear? Guilty. Huh? Guilty. So, okay, guilt. Okay, so I, so I don't, okay, that's interesting. So can we come back to that? <laughs> yeah. Anger. Frustration, yeah. Huh? Puzzled, yeah. You can look at your sheet, yeah. Yeah, there was some acceptance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what can we do? Huh? Helpless, yeah. And okay, so you're being empathic to me, and um, some of these I didn't quite have a sense of myself, even like the guilt, I was thinking. Um, so maybe you're reading subtle things in here. <laughs> And then what were some of the needs or values that were connected with those emotions? Integrity, translated as being on time, right? What else? Hmm? Acceptance. Acceptance, yeah, just uh, what? Um, doing the best I could and, you know, accepting. Yeah, please. To be understood. To be competent. Huh? To be competent. To be competent, huh? yeah. Uh, meaning to be able to be there on time? Yeah. Huh? 
Equanimity, yeah. Um, right, so that's an interesting example. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting because I, I, uh, I wasn't sure what some of the emotions were, but you were, you were in a sense, meeting me, right? And even some of it could even be discussion, like guilt, I, I don't, that didn't ring, but maybe there was, and let me look at that, right? So that's interesting, right? And so, but the main thing is this is a way that we can really in the next week practice empathy. You can do this with people you're with and the, the aim is we're going to do this with people with whom there's a conflict. And I want to do one further exercise and we'll have some discussion. I want you to think of a conflict that involves you and one other person and probably a conflict that on a scale of one to ten is maybe a five or a six or a seven, not the worst one, okay? Think of a conflict. Think of a very relatively simple conflict. Could be at work, with your partner. Think of a conflict in which you have two positions, something like A and B. Okay, and I want you to take that sheet of paper and divide it into four quadrants. What I'd like you to do on one side of the, uh, one side, the left side will be on the top, your feelings or emotions, on the bottom, your needs. On the right hand side, the other person's emotions at the lower right, the other person's needs. Okay? And take some time, just try to have maybe one or two uh, emotions identified for you and the other person, and then one or two needs identified. So what we're trying to do is to apply empathy to a conflictual situation. Yeah, four quadrants. Left-hand quadrant is you. Right-hand quadrants, the other person. The upper quadrants are emotions or feelings. The lower quadrants are needs or values. Huh? Use, the, use the sheet. Okay, yeah, just work, work with the sheet. Um, Don't worry too much if you think an emotion is a, a need, but it's they're, they're, generally there one can make the distinction.
Yeah, just just have uh, one or two or three emotions for each of the four, uh, each of the upper quadrants, and one or two or three needs identified. Don't have to be too definitive. about another minute or so. So we have some time for uh, discussion, sharing. Any insights from that exercise? We can use the we can use the mic. Generally, in in conflicts, um, empathy is in short supply. Empathy and compassion are in short supply. And uh, can be very hard. Sometimes just the level of uh, pain is too much. They can really block empathy. That's why it sometimes needs time. Right? It can really block uh, empathy for the other person or for the other side. But for approaching conflicts, I'm suggesting that there are these three broad resources. The first is our meditative capacities to work with difficult emotions, with difficult mind states, uh, look at attachment to views, and so forth. A second major resource is the vision of a both-end approach to conflict. And a third major resource are what I would generally call heart practices, particularly empathy, which is going to be necessary to work with the both-end model. You know, to how, how do you tune in to the deeper needs of the other without empathy? And again, how can you have empathy towards someone with whom there could be some reactivity, conflict, and so forth? So... What I'm suggesting is that these are three broad areas of training or, or, or development for being skillful with conflict and connecting it with our practice. So 
reflections, comments, questions? Yeah. I'm just a little confused. Um, can you are, is put, both, put the to your, uh, your is mouth? Both is both and the same as win-win. Yeah, both okay. and is the same as win-win in terms of that model. Yeah. Any observations from the exercise? Anything you noticed that was interesting? Wait for the microphone. We have a person here, and then you'll be second, Jim. Okay. I just read an article about this. Being an older woman, I have my older daughter coming to visit me, and she is a person that likes to get things done, and she's very organized. And I'm, she's also creative. I'm creative, and I'm dealing with the loss of my husband. But what came up from the, also what I read in the paper, as you get older, you don't want to lose your independence. You, you want control of your life. And my oldest daughter is more specific about it than the other daughter. But they want me to be safe. That's what popped into my head. So some of the things they try to get you to do or not do is their fear of what could happen to you. So that was an opening in my mind, which is something I can talk to her about. My need to to be independent as long as I can be. That's great. So really, see, otherwise, without recognizing that there's something quite genuine about the need for safety and and the need for independence. Otherwise, it could just get into a my will versus your will, right? Right. And something like that. And, And when you bring it to this level and maybe even use that model, then you can start to be creative. What's the most creative way that we can try to meet both needs, right? Because that that's, would be bringing in the both and. But just to actually take a difficulty and get, oh, it's really safety versus independence right. appearing as a dualistic conflict, right? right. And, and that permits some creativity, right? And you can also see, okay, why the emotions are as they are. Because I, I can now identify her fear. Yeah. Which I was resistant. There she goes trying to push me. Because I like to have fun when she comes and I don't like her to force me to do all these things that I don't want to do. Right. See, what you, you're able to make an empathic move. Oh, it's really about safety. It's not just about her controlling me. Right. right. That the controlling me, that's where you're framing it only in terms of your value. So that was a very valuable exercise. Yeah, yeah. It can shift. It can lead to shifting long-standing conflicts. <laughs> yeah. Jim, please. We had a conflict. Which microphone? <laughs> well, I ran right into not knowing what the other person was feeling because they're pass. It's classic passive-aggressive, and when mm-hmm. I try to find out they hide behind titles and bureaucracy and talk with someone else who says talk with someone else and I'm trying to get information or something mm. resolved. So. Mm. Um, can, you, can you guess what the... Uh, sometimes with empathy, you know, if the person is there, we, we can usually know emotions. There's an element of guessing with empathy that is necessary sometimes. And even... Can you guess at some of the emotions there? 
denial. <laughs> denial yeah. of the situation. Or maybe could could it be uh, just frustration with having to deal with it? Possibly. I don't. I don't know this person that well. It's kind of yeah. a new situation, and I, I just. It's. Do you have direct contact with the person? Uh huh. Yeah. And what would be the need? On my part. On the other, both parts. Yeah. Their need feels like for me just to go away. See, that's the strategy. Yeah. Right. What? See that? If that's and that's that's a strategy, if that's correct. But what is the what is the need? What's remember? See, this is where empathy can be helpful. It sort of humanizes the other person, because there's a, there's going to be a genuine need there. Well, they want things to stay. Here I am coming along, causing trouble. They want things to stay. As as is. Okay. What's uh, what's a need? What's a genuine need there? On their part. Yeah. Well, just that to keep things as they are. No, that's a strategy. Okay. Look at your sheet. Uh, those are all strategies. What is a genuine, universal need that every that you could say this is this is important? Every human being. Peace. Is, yeah. <laughs> could be peace. Could be ease. Harmony. Sure. Something like that. See that. See how that changes your feeling when you go from they wanted to keep it the way it is to they're wanting ease, right? But I'm wanting ease and harmony too. They're, that's why I'm trying to communicate these difficulties. Now, this this isn't denying your <laughs> your needs, but um, uh, and of course, uh, I think we can feel the energy right in the in the issue. But um, and did you choose a five or a six on a scale of ten? Probably not, because <laughs> it's really up today. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it sounds. But do you see where my questions were going, Jim? Sure, but I guess what I said a while ago about you know it, these things are never. There's lots of sticky connections and parts, so they're never one thing or the other. Yeah, and so it's hard to kind of. Now, now one important thing about empathy, empathy. You can be empathic towards the other person with, without agreeing with the person. That's very crucial, right? Really, really crucial point. Empathy doesn't mean giving up, giving in, being a pushover, not standing up for what's important. We, we can be empathic with people that we really, really disagree with, right? And generally, it's going to be helpful. You know, and of course, there are extreme situations. But um, you don't have to agree and you don't have to think that because you have empathy and see this person wants ease, that the person's doing the right thing. You don't have to, that, that does not, that's not the implication, right? So, but the empathy would uh, permit you maybe to connect a little bit more with the person, even possibly uh, have a breakthrough. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you have one on the side. So, so that's an important point that could come out that... Uh, we can listen empathically and not agree with the person. Yeah. So you're saying, if I understand it, that seeing that the other person wants things to remain the same, the question is why? What's, what's their perceived need for why things need to remain the same? If that's a need for peace or a need for ease, is mm-hmm. that? Um, we would want to try to make a guess as to what's going on for the person, right? And um, still, you know, it's still we, 
You know, in, it sounds like you're dealing with an organization or an institution. So it gets, of course, more complicated. You know, it's, some of this stuff is a little sim- simpler when we just have an interpersonal interaction. We get into institutions, we get into policies and, uh, you know, what's the purpose of the institution? <laughs> I mean, it, it gets more complicated. But, but we can still, on a very simple level, say, what is this person's, what do the person's need? We could also probably say the person doesn't want, you know, wants uh, stability and wants to keep the job, has economic interests and isn't going to say, Jim, I realize my organization has been screwing you and I've been asked to, to follow that policy. And, and I, at the risk of my job, I'm going to do what you want. <laughs> right, so, okay, yeah. Other insights, reflections from the exercise or anything else that came up from, from the morning? Just okay. an appreciation for how difficult this is. Yeah. I mean, it's really challenging and it makes one reach a level of uh, honesty in oneself that may not be a comfort zone. Yeah, it's it's demanding. I'm, I'm naming, you know, we people do graduate programs in being skillful with conflict, right? And I'm naming three core resources and not even going into depth. The first was just how do I work with my anger, my frustration, my um, being judgmental, you know? How do I work with that to transform that. Again, each of those we could take two sessions, four sessions on, right? How do I, and how do I get good at that? That's what our practice helps us to do, just internal, there's internal work. And then how do I look, take, you know, we could, you know from the point of view of Buddhist practice, we could call this wise view. What's a wise view for how to approach conflict? And I didn't bring in, you know, when I sometimes teach more in more depth on conflict, I make connections between the win-win model and the Buddha's middle way. There's, a, there's some very interesting connections. The, the Buddha once said, when things are, let's see, if I can give the exact quote. When things are, Basically, uh, anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. So he was very much looking at extreme situations where you have polarization. So, uh, so developing that view and then some of the interpersonal skills like empathy or I would say compassion. We could outline others. So it's a lot, right? And this, all of these skills are going to be necessary if you just have a disagreement about whose turn it is to do the dishes. All this stuff will come up right in that moment, right? Or, you know, but what I'm urging is that we maybe choose one of these capacities to work with. Maybe you want to, one way to work with empathy is, for example, to use something like the model of what you did with me and just do it when you're connected with people. You don't have to tell them, oh, um, you're frustrated and you need peace. <laughs> they tell you a story, but 
to do a conscious, you know, to consciously in an interaction say, I want to bring empathy to the situation. And it can be a kind of a formal meditative practice where you bring in uh, what are the emotions, what matters for this person. You don't even have to use the word need. What matters to the person, what emotions are there. And if you let that be a guide and you try it, you can, you know, if it's too hard to do in the moment with a person, watch a soap opera and do do it with the television. I'm just partly joking. But you can, you can do it. Uh, you can do it live. You can do it with uh, a film or something. But the key is, can I have an empathic intention to understand this person and have some interest, curiosity, and wanting to understand them rather than defeat them? And of course, the place to <clears throat> practice it initially is where there's not a conflict. I'm not suggesting just do this with conflicts. I'm suggesting do it, do this practice where there are no conflicts whatsoever. You know, where you can just develop the capacity and then bring it into more challenging situations. That's the that's the logic of it. <clears throat> so, let me invite you. We're we're at time now, so I'm going to finish. Let me invite you to, if you feel energized or inspired to work more skillfully with conflict, how do you want to work in the next week? How do you want to practice? Which tool do you want to work with? Again, it could be a meditative tool like working with difficult emotions or developing compassion. It could be working with the both-end model and applying it to conflicts or one conflict. Or it could be working with empathy. And how might you apply that intention in the next week? Then we we close by dedication of merit, may our explorations be a benefit for ourselves, for those in our lives, and beyond our own circles to all other beings. May our explorations be a benefit for all beings, which includes ourselves. Thank you, and to be continued.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.